Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. In this episode, we speak with Massimo Lazzari, President and Representative Director at Columbia Sportswear Japan, where he has lived and worked for over 30 years, so we had a lot of ground to cover. We kick it off talking about how the Todd's brand developed in Japan from 2001 to 2007. We then move on to the importance of brick-and-mortar retail in the early to mid-2000s, how the outdoor industry evolved throughout the 2010s, how COVID influenced the move towards e-commerce, the importance of building professional relationships in the APAC region, and what some of the upcoming trends will be in Japan. Enjoy. If you look at the ranking of the top European luxury brands, I would definitely have mostly brands that were originally, you know, either footwear or handbags, again, leather accessories, manufacturers or brands, and then maybe expand it into apparel. That's more common to happen the vice versa. And for my take on that, I think it has to do with the fact that apparel is becoming very much commoditized these ways to manufacture high quality uh, shoe or handbag is still something that's not easy to replicate. Look still at the country of origin sort of trend for apparel versus what's not happening in, in leather goods, still very much primarily made in France and Italy. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half of the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market that no globally-minded organization should ignore. But entering markets like China, Japan, or Southeast Asia is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. However, times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success growing their key markets in APAC. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies grow in the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful Asia market entry and growth strategies by interviewing the experts who've done it before and truly understand what it takes to be successful in the region. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation. Brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Massimo, welcome to the show. Hi, Todd. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me today. All right. Let's place you on the planet for this episode. Where in the world are you today during this recording? I am in Tokyo sitting in my office. Give us a quick introduction to yourself and the work that you do. Okay, I'm uh, the Japan General Manager at Columbia Sportswear. Uh, I've been working at Columbia for the past 11 years and been in Japan for over 30 years, which is, of course, more than half of my life and been enjoying it so far. So you grew up in Italy. I, I think uh, if everybody did understand Massimo Lazzari being an Italian name, you know, I think we all picked up on that. You, you spent your formative years in Italy. How did you end up in Japan? That's right. I was born and raised in the city of Torino, Turin, which is northwest of Italy, close to the French border. And uh, I got my education in Italy and partly in France. And so how did I end up uh, spending, you know, this past 30 years in Japan? Well, um, back when I was at the university, there was a late part of the 80s. And as you may remember, the Japanese economy was literally on fire. You know, you had Japanese companies buying landmark, you know, Rockefeller Center in New York. There were lots of case studies about Japan, the Japanese economy, Japanese company. And I was studying economics and, and marketing back then. So it was natural for me to have you know, an interest to develop an interest um, for this part of the world. And then my marketing professor said, well, 
why don't you go there and spend some time and do some research and then you write your graduating paper on the Japanese economy, which is what I did. Well, I came in 1991, uh, I did do some research and learn about this country. When I went back and, and graduated, I said, why don't I take a sabbatical for a year and go back and spend some time over there? And here I am, fast forward 30 years later. How long did you expect to spend there when you first went? Well, a year or so. Uh, no, no big expectations. You know, you just want to go out and do some experience and learn something right out of university. But then I landed a job because uh, this is a very important market for, for many industries, but especially the Italian and French fashion industry. Um, you know, the Japanese consumer has, has a keen interest in, in high quality, you know, fashion and, and luxury goods. And so my first job at Ferragamo basically came as a consequence of that. Let's talk about the work that you did with Todd's and discussing your retail journey uh, there. You were with Todd's for five and a half years as managing director of their Japanese division. So could you talk about what the presence and perception of Todd's was the day before you began uh, running that division versus the last day of you running that division? That was a very interesting project. It was basically a startup project. When, when I started, we had to hire, you know, the whole team and set up the operations, open up the office. Uh, that was that was made it very, very exciting from the beginning. But you're right. You basically have a little awareness and you have to establish a brand from the beginning, which is what made it interesting, but also challenging. And uh, the whole part was about, you know, just don't, not bringing a product or a brand, but first try to explain what the brand is about. And then the consumer would find and discover that when as they buy and, and use the products. You know, uh, Todd is about high quality uh, footwear, shoes and, and leather goods. And so how do you explain the craftsmanship that's behind or beyond the, behind those products? I had a chance once to visit one of the top factories in Italy and uh, making uh, back then, you know, manufacturing a pair of shoes took more than a hundred steps of which over half of those were manual steps. So the importance of really the craftsman that uh, adds value through their own manual work is something that you can't see in the product when you have it in front of you in a store. And so we develop, you know, events at department stores having those shoemakers come over from Italy and show exactly how a piece of shoe, a pair of shoe takes, takes shape. You know, speaking of that quality, I think we, for those of us that have, have spent some time in APAC, um, we understand that, that the Japanese consumer is fairly well known and a bit of a generalization here, but fairly well known to be quite discerning when it comes to the quality that they seek or expect in their purchases. Todd's certainly a brand, as, as you mentioned, um, that represents quality or at least aims to represent high quality. Was Todd's in Japan a natural fit or no? Well, in a sense, yes, but you have to explain that. As I said, the events we would organize on the department stores, people that and the, the shoemakers that would come over from Italy to explain the history and the authenticity. I think that's two, that's two answers to that question. One is about the product, and the other one is everything that's around it. I would say that the nature of the Japanese consumer when they do shopping is less transactional. 
It's more about a value that you get, not only in the product that you buy, but what's around it. It could go from just the wrapping. You may have seen uh, videos of how, how carefully a product is wrapped and then delivered to the customer. It's a service to the consumer. Uh, the, the store assistants would wear gloves when taking a, a pair of shoes off from the shelves and, and hand it to the customer for trying it just to, uh, in a way, convey the um, care that they take, even when they take it with their hands and uh, and offer it to the consumer. So it's the all that's around the shopping experience itself, which goes beyond just a transaction that helps build the quality image. So Todd's is coming into Japan and now that's a, a landscape of its own has multiple products, uh, multiple uh, competitors, uh, multiple different variations on the shelves in the marketing landscape. Did you have to adjust, let's say, the messaging and the positioning of the Todd's brand in Japan, given the landscape there that you were entering? Not necessarily the positioning because the positioning for the brand worldwide was very clear, you know, being a top end uh, luxury brand. Right. Will you explain that to a different culture? Uh, yes. And so the communication, uh, the type of wording, some other time it was a product adjustment. Um, we found, and that was, I think, one of the winning points for the uh, the startup project uh, that um, the consumer, we did some focus groups and, and learned that the consumer liked the shape and the design of the Todd's bags, but they found them too big for their body. And if you look, you know, at the shape and the size of the body of the Japanese typical consumer versus maybe Europeans, it's tinier somehow, you know. And so uh, the design team decided to develop sort of an excess version of every bag that they had to make it look more, you know, proportionate to the size of the body of the Japanese consumer. And since then, it really saves, really picks up uh, in an expected way. And uh, um, in five years, at some point, the share of uh, of bags for a brand that's known mostly for their footwear actually exceeded the share of footwear, the revenue share. You started making the handbags a little bit smaller for the proportionate sizing compared to the body of the purchaser in that market. And that had a tremendous impact on, on sales, just, just changing the size. It was, the quality was the same. The design was the same. You know, the brand name was the same, the messaging, the positioning, just the actual physical size of the bag. Yes. So sometimes the, the problem is really in front of you and it's really a common sense solution. And I've seen that um, in other instances in my career where uh, you don't really need you know, rocket science to, to break into this market. But the way you think, you have, you have really to be consumer-driven and understand what are the needs of this consumer and how we can sort of, you know, fulfill or satisfy them. It's that that hidden secret of common sense uh, that, uh, you know, that is really winning. I think that it's quite normal for every successful brand to think, you know, what we have been doing in another region that has been successful could work or must work in Japan as well. And that's the first option you have in front of you. But if you do a bit of, you know, the math, then you realize that most often that's not the case. 
quick dive into brick and mortar. I think, you know, anytime we're talking about retail and we're talking about the APAC region, I think it's worth talking about retail, uh, where it was, uh, what was going on, because we kind of have an understanding of where we're at now. How important was brick and mortar retail while you were at Todd's? And, and how did that evolve over your tenure there, the five and a half years? In general, I'd say that brick and mortar retail is very important in Japan, and you can do that at multi-channel level. You have department stores, a fashion mall, shopping malls, depending on what brand you want to sell where to what consumer. The type of consumer segmentation that you can do in this market uh, can be very accurate. You have specific cluster of consumers visiting specific uh, type of uh, shopping malls uh, or department stores. It's very important in another way. We have seen the explosion of uh, of online uh, sales in some market really literally taking over brick and mortar. I haven't seen this happening to the same extent, trend-wise, yes, but not to the same extent in this market. And so the question would be, why hasn't that happened and what's going to be what's going the future look like. Um, so I think that this O2O, so the online and offline being two sides of the same coin is what we would really see in Japan. The reason being, again, back to the transactional nature of shopping, Japan is more about entertainment. And uh, the way that you, uh, we will to go together and see and visit some of the shopping malls, you start enjoying what, what you do. You just go, don't go there I'm shopping and quickly come back. And, and by the way, I, I shop online as well when I'm busy. It's just so convenient. But there are times when you say, you know, I want to go do some window shopping, enjoy, you know, coffee break, go with friends, maybe do some other uh, things in the meanwhile. And you can get all of that, including entertainment, um, cinemas, complex within the same premises. So going to a shopping mall is just not only about shopping, it's a lot. I checked my notes. I think I said you were with Todd's before Ferragamo. I was wrong. You were with Ferragamo uh, ahead of Todd's. So I, I want to kind of lean a little bit on your experience there as well, saying that you spent about 12 years in the, the luxury space, right? The Ferragamo, very luxury brand. Todd's, again, very high quality luxury brand. What was the perception of these European luxury brands in Japan as a whole Back when you were with those brands, are they more popular in places like Tokyo and Osaka or do they do well in the more rural areas outside the major cities? Well, I think back to your first point, um, the role of European luxury companies uh, in, in Japan back in the early 90s, mid 90s and even late 90s, that has been a decade where really uh, European luxury brands really dominated this market. And if you look at, you know, the stages of development of every market, and we could compare that with, with Korea and with China, definitely Japan was a bit on, on the leading edge there. And now it, it's really maturing into a post sort of consumerist society, becoming less materialist in a sense in the market, while then you have the emergence of China and partly Korea in that area. So today, probably Japan on the map of a luxury brand is still very important, but you have China and Korea also playing an incredible, especially China role in that area. So if we limit our analysis back to the 90s, there was a time where you would come to Japan first, establish your brand, and then sort of expand within Asia with the goodwill that you have built here. Let's remember there's always been a high proportion of visitors, visitors from neighboring countries, China and Korea, 
representing the majority of it that come, shop, see, enjoy, like, go back and want the same then back home. And so that has sort of a bridge to expanding into other markets in the 90s to until early 20s. It has changed now. The product suite, I, I want to actually maybe even get a little bit more granular and talking about uh, the footwear and leather goods. Okay, some, something that both brands, I would say, lean on uh, as far as revenue from their product suite and product offerings. Would footwear and leather goods perform just as well, uh, perform better uh, than other luxury products in Japan? I think it's not just about Japan, but most more generally in Asia. I think that if you look at the ranking of the top colors, classify them as luxury European luxury brands in the top I would definitely have mostly brands that were originally you know either footwear or handbags again leather accessories manufacturers or brands and then maybe expand it into apparel that's more common to happen the vice versa and if we might take on that I think it has to do with the fact that apparel is becoming very much commoditized these ways but how that you need to manufacture high quality uh, shoe or handbag is still something that's not easy to replicate. Look still at the country of origin sort of trend for apparel versus what's not happening in, in leather goods, still very much primarily made in France and Italy. So know-how that's required in the craftsmanship for those specific categories that is not easily replicable. Okay, so you're saying it was a lot easier for them to get a foothold in Japan. Sorry for the pun. Uh, ultimately, what did you learn about selling luxury products to Japanese consumers over those 12 years? A lot, a lot more than just selling the products. It's it's about uh, the need to be consistent when you establish, you know, when, when you want to establish a brand and not just, again, a transactional business. Um, it's about... Um, the ability to build an intangible aura around the product and back to the commoditization. We've seen this happening uh, today in sportswear and outdoor where you buy a product and most of the times that product is, is a very uh, common piece of garment, but it has a name on it or it has something, I mean, a technology in it that justifies that extra that you pay for that item and what's around the product has begun to be as important if not more than the product itself in certain categories moving forward through the resume you then joined columbia sportswear where you've been since january 2011 so diving into your role there starting at a bit of a macro level you were there 11 years as a whole so how have you seen the outdoor industry evolve over those 11 years, and then maybe we can maybe zoom in on the Japanese market in particular and seeing that market evolve. I, I find, specifically for me, I find outdoor sports, mountaineering, uh, all this, this kind of, uh, these verticals, very interesting in that area of the world. Maybe... 10, 20 years ago, not typically known for uh, being big enthusiasts of those activities. Yeah, I think that few things have changed. I think the outdoor industry itself has evolved, but the market has become more receptive to something that comes from an outdoor brand, in a sense. If you think of it, the way I like to think of it is that uh, outdoor or sport and athletic brands are there to provide solutions, 
you know, whether it's athletes or, or common people like myself going and be on, on a hiking or a camping adventure on the weekend. But we want to feel warm, cool, dry, protected as we enjoy, you know, maybe with our partners or our family. And the idea of developing solutions came to sort of uh, uh, answer some of the needs that the market was sort of developing towards. If you, if you look at the market, and that's Japan and other regions as well, uh, what we used to be wearing Monday to Friday, uh, going to the office, for example, has changed dramatically in the past 20 to 30 years. It's become less formal, you know, no necktie, not even a jacket, maybe an untucked shirt. But what's more is that you need Again, solutions Monday to Friday too, because you want to feel comfortable. Let's think about the post-COVID world. And I see that happening every single day in Tokyo. People have become more mobile because you you work from home in the morning, but you know you have a meeting in the afternoon. So you get on a train and and reach the office and you don't want to change three times. You want to have something that's versatile and, and can play a role and just need maybe just wear something on top of that. And you can be yourself in different situations. And so that is where I think that the solutions that outdoor companies and sportswear companies in general used to provide on the field become extremely valuable now on a Monday to Friday. And that's it's opening up a new door to up for opportunities in the market. Sure. Is that is that door swinging the other way as well? Are we seeing brands that come from more sophisticated luxury side, maybe starting to offer products that are able to blend into more casual and comfort? Uh, There is a sort of convergence in that sense. But I do think that when you have, you know, uh, your own set of solutions, whether it's technologies or or know-how they've developed over the years, in that sense, outdoor and sportswear companies, and we see that really in the market these very days, have an edge uh, versus someone coming maybe from an sort of a more commodity-like type of segment and try to, to mimic or to provide that benefit. Okay, so you mentioned, you mentioned COVID, you brought it up. Um, let's address it now. How have you seen, have you seen a major shift from offline to online purchases in Japan over the past few years when we have been dealing with the pandemic? You know, or, or, or maybe we can separate that. Have you seen a shift from offline to online more, whether it's purchases shopping, browsing, putting stuff in a cart, or even returns, uh, and how it's affected? And and how has COVID most likely exacerbated that trend? I think that COVID is more about a short-term trend that has built on top of an existing long-term tendency to move from um, offline to online. That's undeniable. That happens in Japan too. Uh, The way I see it, it's happening at a slower pace than other regions for a number of reasons, maybe because Japanese still have a preference to have that sort of, again, entertainment sort of shopping experience that you can only get from brick and mortars. But the adoption rate, if you will, uh, especially of young of online shopping, it's undeniably growing. Now, in the two years that we had COVID, we had that acceleration that's now getting back to normal. So if I look at what's happening in the market right now, 2022 versus last year, um, many uh, people that I know in the industry are telling me, you know, we are seeing a return back to brick and mortar and a sort of a slower growth for e-com. Does that mean the end of e-com? Not at all. We're just getting back to the underlying long-term trend. Now, 
It was a good friend of the show, Bill Tung. We've had him on the podcast before. We had him on the podcast more recently. And he was the one who actually recommended and introduced you to us to have you on the show. He also was somebody who talked a lot about the importance of localizing products for the specific mark that you're in. Can you share maybe some examples of how Colombia has localized some of their products for the Japanese consumer? It's a, it's a very tricky subject, if you will. You know, um, normally, I think I've seen two macro trends, uh, not only in outdoor, but sports, where overall you have some companies that have been able probably to really centralize that function and be able to provide a, a global collection that pretty much works everywhere. And others that have gone the other way of having definitely a global collection, but to complement that with local, locally developed uh, elements within the product line that gives you the extra mile. Now, which is right one. I think it really depends on, on a number of things. So I can speak to what we're doing here at Columbia as one of the possible ways of interpreting it, a, a way that's been very successful for us, but there may be other, other solutions. Uh, definitely in outdoor, if we think specific to outdoor and I look at the key players in the market, they are local brands. So you really have to play a part with them if you want to win. And uh, sometimes because they play in their own domestic market, they do a lot of things that global companies tend to want to do differently. And that's where, you know, uh, the ability to develop local products, for example, help you fill that gap. Okay, let's try to tease out some highlights. 11 and a half years now, 11 and 11 and a half years now with Columbia. Let's just talk about some, uh, some of the highlights from, uh, from, from, from that 11 and a half years with Columbia. Uh, what would you maybe call it or point out um, some highlights and, and maybe some key learnings, you know, for our audience from your time there? Of course, I could write a book answering this question. Overall, I think that it's part of our DNA as a company to, to always try uh, new things and, and then sort of intercept areas of opportunities there. Uh, we have uh, been able over time to develop um, local store concepts, as well as, uh, as I said a moment ago, really uh, product capsules that were very much uh, focused on capturing the Japanese consumer and, and answering their needs. I think those are really the areas of success. We're not in a technology field in a sense, even though I'll talk to technology in a moment to answer to your point. But overall, you know, probably garments, apparel, sportswear, um, footwear are very traditional uh, industries. And so there's not a lot of technology you can put into it or beyond a certain level. But it's playing the common sense, you know, business strategy, the retail strategy. So we have really uh, worked on uh, strengthening our DTC a lot more and a lot earlier than in other regions. So today, back to the technology part, we have a technology platform here that allows us to do incredible things. Let's just mention one. We, we can replenish our stores overnight all over Japan. That's something that also relates to the geography of, of, of the country. So, you know, pretty much about the size of California. When you have a network of stores, you know, in that very limited um, territory, then if you're able to set up quick replenish system, then you can really optimize your inventory in a market that's typically very fragmented. So one of the interesting things of, of Japan is you have high population density. You have four macro 
regions, if you will, but cities in, in a sense that cover half of the population and about 75% of the business of almost any brand doing business in Japan. So it's very urban as an environment. It's very concentrated in those areas. And when you have high density, you typically want to cover that environment with a multitude with many stores. You can expect one store to, to be able to serve, you know, a highly densely populated area. But when you have many stores, that translates into complexity in terms of the allocation, the assortment for the store. So when you, if you have a platform that can address that and instead and take advantage of the geography of the market in terms of speed, you can really have use technology not as an enabler, but as a differentiator. Those who have those capabilities definitely perform better than those who don't have them. In your time there, I'm sure you have built many, many partnerships. I think partnership building in Asia Pacific is very important. I, I, I would stop myself from saying it's more important than potentially in America, but I might actually think that it is. I think that maybe partnership building and relationship, being good at relationship building as a brand, plus as an executive at a brand is, uh, stop me if I'm wrong, is it more important and I mean, I know that your a lot of your your professional career really lies in in Asia Pacific, so maybe you can't speak to, you know, EMEA or Americas. But I'm going to go ahead and say that I think it is. I've seen it just be more and more important than it, at least my experience being in Americas. Okay. Now that said, and you can you can you can uh, confirm or deny whether uh, my assumption is right or wrong if you think so. But what about? And help us educate the audience and, and you know, from, from your experiences about building partnerships, building relationships, what have you learned about how to do these things well in Asia Pacific? Let me start with saying that I think it's important building relationships uh, professionally as well as beyond that is important pretty much everywhere in the world. You do it differently. And that's the hard part because, again, we come with our own set of uh, belief and, and knowledge that comes from the place we were raised in and educated. And we tend to apply that everywhere we go, which is not the case. So, for example, a, a simple thing like uh, sending an email or, or making a phone call to start, um, you know, a business conversation may be the best way to do that in some parts of the world. Definitely in Japan, I'd say probably visiting, you know, that customer initially and having a face-to-face -face conversation also uh, shows your respect uh, toward your counterpart. And it's a better way of kickstarting that conversation while sending an email. Sometimes just you get ignored because you, you perceive like you're trying, but you're not putting enough, we could say, effort in that from the start. Wanted to have you get out the uh, the crystal ball and we want to look ahead. Let's 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 talk a little bit about the future, according to Massimo and say, OK, so where do you see the Japanese market, maybe from a macro level, heading in the next 10 years? Is it looking good for the economy and, and the market there? What trends do you see that are going on, that are going to continue, that are going to grow? And then maybe on the third part, and, I, and I'll remind you of these because I know it's a lot to remember as you get going. Maybe what trends do you see tapering off and maybe we're just a fad, uh, maybe like NFTs, just kidding, crypto heads. But first of all, where's the market going in the next 10 years? 
Look, uh, there's one um, trend that uh, that's undeniably in front of us every single day, and sometimes it goes unnoticed, to be honest. You probably know that, but Japan has been on a, on a declining population trend for over 10 years now. And, and even the most rosy prediction tell us that in another 20 or 30 years, you know, it's going to go down by tens of millions of people. We are at 125, 126 million today. Someone says it goes down to 100, someone to 80. So let's put it this way, and I don't want to, to paint, uh, you know, a bleak picture. I'll start, you know, conservative, but then I'll show you where the opportunity is. And there's plenty of opportunity in the, in the declining market as well. Same as there are opportunities in a declining stock market as well. But the fact is you cannot just grow organic you cannot open a store and expect people just to come flocking in uh, every single year because the 15 to 15 year old to 64 year old uh, portion of the population in the past 11 years has declined over 10%. So doing nothing means you would just lose 10%, say, of the footfall of your store. So how do you attract more people or how do you convert more or how do you take market share away from from the competition? It's a completely different set of uh, or a strategic approach, if you will, than China, where you have, you know, a population that's maybe not really growing very much. But if you look at the portion of the population that gets affluent and can afford something they couldn't do, couldn't afford last year, it's still growing. Japan is on the reverse side of the scale. And so you have to approach it in a different way. Having said that, it's still the number three or four largest economy in the world, probably over the next 12 years or 15 years, it probably India will definitely, you know, take over. It will go down a bit in the ranking, but still top five, top 10. So very important as a market, especially because the consumption part of the GDP, the component of private consumption as a component of GDP is very large. Japanese still like to buy, spend money on buying a lot. Uh, the basket has moved maybe away from certain categories and more into, you know, smartphones, entertainment, Netflix, but still they spend a lot of money. And so it's an interesting market, but you have to approach it from the point of view that you have to really fight for your market share a lot more than in other places. So what you do is important as long as it outperforms the competition. Just coming in, oh, let's approach the Japanese market. Let's get into the market. Let's, you know, start selling our store and see how it goes. It's, it's a losing strategy from the beginning. And I've seen companies come in and after two to three years, and I won't make names, but after two or three years in my, in my segment, say in apparel and garment, pulling out. Where do you see the sports and outerwear industry heading specifically, just, just that area, both in Japan and then globally? Globally, there's a lot of opportunity. We spoke a moment ago about, you know, this, the trend, what we wear on a Monday to Friday and on weekends is changing and really going in the direction of being more comfortable, casual, less formal. And all this, you know, resonates very well with, with sportswear and, and, and outdoor brands, even more so in Japan. I think there's a trend that is, I, I, I think... Technology and availability, even just in tents and coolers and cooking and sleeping and staying warm and comfortable and access to 
being able to go deeper and farther into wilderness regions, I, I see a lot of trends pointing to that vertical and the number of consumers in it growing. Would I be right in your opinion? No, I think that's um, you're right. I, I agree with you on this. And so we have this fundamental trend of, you know, people wanting to wear different things um, during their week, but also a desire to, I would say, sort of escape. And maybe that's driven by the fact that, you know, um, your working environment is always unsure. Um, the world is getting fast. You know, we used to really... Uh, stop working on a Friday evening and then restart on a Monday. But now you can be reached wherever you are at any time. I keep my my smartphone on and I don't know if that's the right thing to do, but now in the middle of the night, you get an invite and make a little sound. You say, okay, I got something. I need to take care of tomorrow. So you're 24 seven connected and basically somehow working in a sense. And I think that there are times when really the human nature and the human body needs, you know, to break away from that. And so this interest or renewed interest for the outdoors and the nature is part of that trend. You know, one of the trends here is, is I I think people are moving back out of the major cities uh, and they're going smaller. Uh, Innovation like Starlink, allowing someone to be able to go and set up and get Wi-Fi, which is the key to really working remote uh, and be able to have that set up in in very remote areas now. I think I think that begins to hopefully begins to take us all back to nature. And if we're going to go back to nature, there's one thing that we know about nature and weather is that it's unpredictable and we're going to need outerwear and sportswear and footwear that is made for that environment. So I think we may all be uh, adorning ourselves in Colombia uh, very, very soon. Last question. And this is what we did to Bill. And this is how we got you on the show is a couple of people, a guest recommendations. And I'm not going to say that you're, you know, publicly throwing them out there under the bus so that we can go and get them and, and say, hey, your name was dropped on, on our podcast recently by Massimo. And, you know, it looks like we're going to have to get you on the show. But is there a couple of people that you think would make good guests, smart people who understand the region of, of Asia Pacific that we could talk to uh, that our guests would like to listen to and you might like to listen to as well? Yes, I do, of course, uh, probably more than two, but uh, I'll stay with that number for the sake of time. Um, they are both long-term residents of uh, of Japan, and that's the place, you know, I've spent my past 30 years, so most of my network is within Japan. I do have good network in Korea, too. Um, and I thought, you know, when I'm probably someone that might have a different perspective. So coming from the industry, you know, whether it's the, the apparel industry or luxury industry has a certain point of view, but, uh, you know, for any brand or any company who wants to do business in a different region, the first thing they have to come up is, you know, let's set up our operation. Let's get ta- local talent to, to have an office that, that we can start building a strategy upon it and an execution. So I have a friend of mine that I've known for a long time. He's American. He works in recruiting in Japan. And that's uh, it's an interesting, I thought, um, and you look from a different perspective, how the market has changed, you know, that the fight for talent is is, a, is at a height right now. The scarcity, uh, let alone when you go in regions and you have language issues, cultural issues, so you want something bilingual, bicultural. So I think Thomas's name, I think that could be an interesting, uh, um, it could provide an uh, an interesting additional point of view. And then I have a 
friend of mine, he's Italian, his name is Lorenzo, and he's been 15, 16 years in Japan, about half of what I have done, but I've worked with him in the past and he's more on the operation side, you know? So again, um, you have the product, the marketing, the execution, the retail, but what's behind that supports that, you know, the technology platform, the operations, the logistics, or, or running the office or the financial aspect. Uh, he's currently CFO. He's been CEO of, of subsidiaries here in Japan. I think that also could give, again, an extra point of view on what's less visible from a consumer standpoint, but what really makes the execution in a region successful or not. Awesome. For those of you who are either listening to the podcast, be aware that if you want to see Massimo and I, we are actually on our YouTube channel as well. So go check out that. For those of you watching uh, on the on the YouTube channel, be aware that we have our podcast on all the podcast platforms, uh, Stitcher, uh, Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify, Google Podcasts, everywhere you find uh, your favorite podcast, we should be there. And a big thank you, Massimo, General Manager, Japan, Columbia Sportswear on the show today. Thank you. Thank you, Todd. It's been a pleasure. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking at the Asia-Pacific region for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands, just like yours, enter China, Japan, and Southeast Asia. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation, and if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co, and be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.